So it's hard not to be excited about the end of so many restrictions and the opening up of everything post-pandemic, but challenges for some small businesses continue and might for a while. To discuss this, I'm joined by Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses, which has actually more than 95,000 small business members nationwide. Hi, Dan. Happy to be with you. Thanks for joining me. So this past year has been clearly something else that none of us have ever experienced in so many ways. But for, for the businesses you represent, tell me what was most surprising to you over the last year as, as their representative and what you saw. Gosh, it was uh, it has been just a brutal, brutal year for, for everyone. But you mm-hmm. can imagine if you're a small business that depends on face-to-face transactions, face-to-face business with your customers, you've been out of luck in many parts of Canada for long, long periods of time. Uh, Canada has used uh, lockdowns fairly liberally. British Columbia, I think, has done better in terms of keeping mm-hmm. lockdowns to a minimum. But uh, but provinces across Canada have used them. That's really put a crimp. And in many cases, business income was ground down to zero. Uh, and uh, and for, for many others, they've had to take on massive amounts of debt just mm-hmm. to be able to get through the last number of very difficult months. That unpredictability from province to province, while on the one hand for healthcare, perhaps it works well, but when you have different approaches and you see what happened in Ontario versus BC versus Saskatchewan versus, you know, it's, it's, it makes it, especially if some businesses who may have franchises across the country and they're like, whoa, what am I, you know, it's very complicated and, and it must have really yeah, impacted them in, in different ways. It sure has. Look, I, I, I'm, I'm sitting in Toronto right now I think it's often surprising to people in British Columbia to learn that indoor dining in the city of Toronto has been prohibited for over 400 days. For more than 400 days, uh, citizens of Toronto have not been able to dine inside a restaurant. Retailers were closed for 225 days. They're now open. Uh, Whereas in BC, retailers weren't closed for a single day. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the, 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 the real crazy nature of some of these rules... Uh, have taken a bite out of uh, out of small business income. Many are hanging on by a thread. Our projection at CFIB is that 185,000, uh, sorry, 180,000 businesses will permanently close their doors before the end of the pandemic, uh, and much of that is still left to come as businesses now are open, but don't see a pathway back to profitability given that many consumers, even in provinces where they're open, uh, many consumers are staying home. Yeah, and most businesses generally are not like people think. Oh, you're in business; you must be rich. Um, but most businesses operate on a, you know, basically you pay yourself a salary, and that covers you. That's your profit, and and your margins are pretty tight, especially when you think about restaurant industries, uh, which are you know their margins are five percent if they're lucky um, on the profit side. So, was it frustrating for you as you know in your role when you're sitting there and you know, we watched the news and we saw the mayor of Toronto hair getting longer and and, and your pre- premier here we're like we can get a haircut what's a big deal um you know but you must have been going to the people who make decisions saying hello what look at what's happening in bc why can't we be more like that you know it it has been super super frustrating uh we've had some of the longest lockdowns in the world in canada particularly Mm -hmm. in ontario and and the restrictions you know covid seems to operate pretty much the same way around the world Yes, lockdowns have been used, including in B.C., but most governments have applied lockdowns for shorter periods of time than removed them. Uh, but as more and more provinces remove all or most of the COVID restrictions, we're starting to see a bit more optimism among the business community, which is certainly good news. Uh, now that we've 
gotten open. I think the big concern on the part of small business owners is how do we stay open with many mm-hmm. predicting a fourth wave uh, that, that, you know, and, and a potential uptick in September when kids go back to school of COVID cases. What do we do now to prepare ourselves so that we don't have to go back into lockdown and we can continue to keep businesses open mm-hmm. uh, to the maximum degree possible? You put out some interesting tweets this morning. That's part of the reason I wanted to talk to you. One was related to um, just the opening up and, and how complicated that is and that there are certain industries that are, you know, when it comes to subsidies and getting the grants and getting the, the wage subsidy that they, that the, the projected end, which is, I think, September at this point, uh, for the wage subsidies may not be ideal for some of those, some, some industries. No, you know, a lot of this is back-end loaded. I, I, I was speaking to some uh, tour tour operators, the, the companies that plan tours and package tours for, mm-hmm. for international destinations or even within Canada, and and much of their their revenue is 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 not going to be materializing until 2022, uh, with the border closed, with people just now thinking about about vacations, uh, international vacations uh, in the months ahead, over the fall or in the winter. You know, a lot of these companies don't get paid until that tour has been consumed, until it's happened. So for them, they're they're actually seeing some uptick in people doing bookings. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need staff, but the subsidies are starting to go down. In fact, the federal government reduced the wage subsidy, reduced the rent subsidy uh, quite significantly just about a week ago. And there's further reductions scheduled for August and September. So we're we're urging the federal government to put pause on any reduction in these subsidy programs, really until all parts of the Canadian economy are open. Just opening your doors Mm -hmm. is step one of the recovery. You've got to get your customers back, get paid, uh, before we can really say that the economic impact of COVID is behind us. Yeah, I mean, if you're in business, if you last year, you had your budget in, in place, you're thinking, okay, new business development or new clients, new business, it'll be this, it'll be that. Uh, then suddenly everything stops. And then everybody, even even if there were subsidies, I think there were a lot of businesses that couldn't get commitment, for example, especially services business, to get you know to get new, new clients because they're like, ah, let's just wait to see what happens here. I'm just going to hold off until I make my decisions on these issues or with this product or this, this or that. And that's created a real disconnect on the budget that they probably had and this huge differential that is problem, problematic for these companies. And, and as you mentioned, potentially debt. Yeah, no, the average small firm across Canada has taken on, if you can believe it, $160,000 in COVID-related debt. This is now money that they owe that they didn't owe Mm -hmm. pre-COVID, often not just to the banks, but to suppliers, to their landlord, uh, bills that they have not yet paid, but are still on their books. And and we worry that, that even if a business has a good month in July or August, they may be lucky just to pay their current bills, let alone make a dent in the debt that they've taken on to keep their business mm-hmm. alive during the COVID period. So, you know, we're, we're urging consumers. We've got a campaign out right now called Small Business Every Day, mm-hmm. urging consumers to, you know, so many of us bought a lot more online, used Amazon, uh, mm-hmm. did del- used delivery services. And, and now we're asking Canadians to get back to to uh, supporting the local small independent shops, restaurants, and others in their communities directly, so that they can potentially eke out a living. Uh, you know, it, it's really really important. So our small mm-hmm. business everyday campaign allows business allows consumers to nominate their favorite business, and the 
not only does the consumer potentially win a prize, but the business can win up to $10,000 oh, wow. if, uh, if they do that. So smallbusinesseveryday.ca uh, provides more information on that. Okay. The other thing you touched on was, um, I'll, I'll note that in, at the end, the other thing you touched on was uh, the vaccine passports. And there's a, it seems like it's sort of similar to what we were talking earlier about an inconsistency uh, province to province. And what's happened in Quebec may not happen somewhere else. So tell me a bit what, why, what your concern is on the, on the vaccine passport. Yeah. Look, the Quebec government put forward um, uh, some discussion. Uh, they started a discussion just, just a few days ago suggesting that rather than lock, you know, if, if COVID cases do tick up again in, in Quebec, that rather than locking all businesses down, which is a worthwhile objective, mm-hmm. their, their thinking is that they would allow only fully vaccinated Quebecers to get out and go to the local shops and restaurants, a nightclub or, uh, or, to, or to the movie theater. And, and while that makes sense on, on some levels, uh, because the risk for fully vaccinated uh, Quebecers, Canadians would be lower, you can imagine if you're running that small business, just the practicalities of trying to enforce rules and, mm-hmm. and ensure that you're only allowing into your business those that are fully vaccinated. So they have a goal of, 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 allow, of getting 80% of Quebecers fully vaccinated by August. It's a laudable goal, but I got to tell you, a business's ability to be able to parse through the crowd and, and admit one and not the other based on a vaccine credential is something that really, really worries us. And it's mm-hmm. just not a role. We don't want small business owners to become the vaccine police. Right. Uh, that's not good it, for business. No, that's not good for business. I mean, I, you saw Boris Johnson, I think, yesterday talking about, you know, the, the people who haven't been vaccinated basically, sorry. You know, and, and so putting them, but we don't know uh, the challenges, of course, is the, is the impact this might have on the variants and all those things. But asking business to police uh, is counterintuitive to most businesses, I mean, unless you're a bar, which may be used to that kind of idea. But uh, most, uh, you know, retail stores just can't do it. Well, and look, provinces are, you know, they've they've created some form of paper copy of uh, your yeah. your shot. But yeah. How does a business really parse through that? It's not like it's an official form of identification. Manitoba is issuing some form of proper vaccine card, uh, but to date, it's the only one that mm. I understand is doing that. If you're asking a business owner to potentially put them, themselves at a risk of a fine by interpreting some mm-hmm. you know, print-off <laughs> from, from the Internet of a vaccine yeah. credential, I, I really worry that a business is just not going to be in a position to do that. Quite apart from the human rights uh, Mm -hmm. implications of vaccine credentials, our concern are more the practical ones. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett this week. And uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter. George underscore Affleck is my handle. You can also email me if you have any uh, thoughts or concerns. uh, George at cknw.com. Or uh, feel free to call our buzz line anytime today at 604-331-2899, 331-2899. You know, the Canadian British Columbia Expert Panel on the Future of Housing Supply and Affordability published in June, uh, a report in June, contained 23 recommendations made primarily to the BC and federal governments. Senior economist Mark Lee has analyzed the final report and says that allowing this to become another report to gather digital dust would be a shame because it contains a lot of interesting ideas. Mark's with the Canadian Centre for Policy, a turn Alternatives, an independent, nonpartisan research institute concerned with the issues of social, economic, and environmental justice. And he joins me now. Hi, Mark. Hi, good afternoon. Good, good afternoon. So gathering dust on a shelf, it's a bit brutal. I mean, do you think that might happen? Is that, is that kind of what happens with these kind of reports in your experience? 
Well, we should hope not, um, you know, but yeah, lots of reports uh, come forward and, and then there's no action taken. Um, the, this particular report came out on a Friday. It was right, you know, uh-huh. just before all of the things went crazy with the heat dome. And, and so it's natural for people to miss it. And the report's kind of more uh, technically oriented. So it's not necessarily the most media friendly uh, report. Mm-hmm. But you know, even within hours of the report's release, uh, the BC finance minister, Selena Robinson, who was previously the housing minister, uh, essentially said, no, there's no way we're going to implement um, one of the report's recommendations, which was to uh, eliminate the homeowner grant in favor of dedicating that, you know, almost a billion dollars per year towards uh, social housing. So to just kind of broad brush dismiss right. uh, one of the the recommendations reports, which is part of, you know, 23 recommendations, five broad calls to action, mm-hmm. and, you know, raises some concerns about whether this report's going to get a serious hearing in Victoria, particularly to the extent it challenges more affluent homeowners. Yeah, why, why would they go so fast to announce that? What was their, they thought it might start getting, you know, leverage somehow and they would be pushed into a corner or why would they be so quick to make that response? Well, I think it came up in in the House, and so it was a a specific response to that. But, I mean, the underlying uh, call to action of of one of the five was uh, in the report is ensuring more equitable treatment of renters and homeowners. (laughs) So if you go back to the last couple of provincial elections, uh, the NDP put forward a renter's rebate, which was essentially uh, aligned with that purpose, to Mm -hmm. try to, you know, balance the playing field a little bit. We give this homeowner grant to almost all homeowners but there's there's some cap on it but but basically almost all homeowners get that and there's nothing really for renters and if you look at the overall thrust of tax and subsidies in in Canada the vast vast majority like 95% go to homeowners so it's only fair that we start to level the playing field for renters because there's so many renters who simply just can't get into the housing market whatsoever so to just sort of broad brush dismiss a key recommendation like that uh, I think is uh, you know it's significant. The the what's interesting is of course it it really focuses on the provincial and federal governments and I would assume that's mostly related to affordable housing. But it's you know, obviously municipal governments have a big part to play in this. Uh, and when I look at my kids, I got two kids in their twenties. They can't buy or rent. I mean, it's just so they're renting, but it's crazy what they're paying. And if they wanted to buy, it's impossible. And so this affordability is not just a renter's issue. It's everybody's issue, um, no matter who you are. And whether they're, you're getting transferred wealth from your rich parents or something, I don't know how you can buy your first home nowadays, whether it's a small apartment in Vancouver or whatever. So this report has 23 recommendations. Are the ones that we could take that would go, okay, this is going to fix this, these issues right away? Is there a magic solution? Well, I mean, first of all, like just some of the context on that, the, the, the panel is looking at housing supply, uh, and there's yeah. a lot of housing demand issues that are, are driving up um, uh, home prices. So, you know, obviously population is growing and incomes are growing, so those are kind of natural demographic factors. But we've been in this period of, like, record low interest rates that allow uh, people to take on much, much larger mortgages. Um, we have more financialization where housing is bought as, an investment property, like a second or third property to rent out, potentially some future use for for a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're starting to see all of this run up in real estate. Um, the you know, windfalls going to, to various folks, and I would count myself among them. But you know, people are basically transferring those windfalls to their kids so mm-hmm. that they can get into the market and get a down payment. So all of these things are kind of stoking demand. This. This report wasn't looking at that stuff. It left all that stuff off the table and was looking at some of the, the, the issues around supply. And, you know, the general finding that, you know, we're not 
building enough housing. It mm-hmm. sounds kind of crazy to say that because you will go around the city and there seem to be cranes uh, <laughs> all over the place. Um, but if you look at the, the amount of housing we're building you know, per capita, like relative to the population, we're actually well below historical numbers. And if right. we were to kind of be more at the level we were in the 60s and 70s, we'd be, you know, we'd be starting 5,000 more um, uh, homes uh, this year than, than we're currently planning. So there's certainly something to do with the supply um, uh, side. But, you know, it needs to be put in context. Uh, one of the things that they really focus on is just the um, the process of development approvals. And, you know, <laughs> I'm sure people have long stories mm-hmm. that they, they or themselves can talk about uh, delays and slowdowns at City Hall. But in particular, it's, it's regard to the idea of adding more density. So we, we kind of uh, regulate the amount of additional density, you know, like allowing more buildable square feet on a particular piece of land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they go through these processes where you have... Um, uh, a rezoning process, so the the decision goes to a city council before they can allow that, and then you know because there's um, you adding more density puts more money on the table essentially, it makes mm-hmm. that property more valuable. Then there's a negotiation between the city and the developer around the community amenity contribution, uh, but then all of the local folks who are upset about that get to have their voice against it. Uh, and their voices are, are dramatically amplified in council chambers. Uh-huh. So you have this kind of political economy, which is which is really slowing down uh, the development of housing. And so that's where I think the the report starts to get into the really needy issues when we look forward. It's it's interesting though. There was a recent story about Vancouver and how the number of you know units being replaced. So single family home, easy to replace a single family home. Just bam, you're done. Build it in a couple of years or less, uh, and you can walk away if you're a developer. With flip it for a you know five hundred thousand dollar profit over over those two years, sweet cash, no problem. But to go through and build a three story walk up or you know three story building in a neighborhood is takes five years and it takes it's impossible. Even if it's even if it's pre zoned, just going through the process uh, of of getting all the permits and all that stuff, it's just you can see how uh, people who build. Uh, whether they be nonprofits or for profits or whoever, go. Ugh, I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered. It's, there's no point. Yeah, I and mean, there's a lot of stresses, and, and part of it too is just the amount of developable land at those densities that's available. So yeah. the, you know, the vast majority of the of the city of Vancouver and the region as a whole, you know, like eighty percent is reserved for essentially detached housing, like mm-hmm. kind of old school single family housing. Even mm-hmm. though some of them now have you know basement suites and laneway uh, houses, houses and that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. So there's been some incremental improvement there. Mm-hmm. But I think so. The thrust of a lot of development goes on in these big sites, you know, near a transit station mm-hmm. or a main street. And because there's, it's more limited and land prices go up, then the impetus is to build bigger and higher. And then if we want to then tack on some affordable housing on top of that, we want to build it even bigger and higher. Yeah. So, and then, and then the community is like, wait, this is way out of scale for our neighborhood. And you get these kind of dynamics that we hear about yeah. week by week in the city of Vancouver. So I think overall kind of spreading out that density more mm-hmm. broadly into those single family areas has got to be part of the path forward. Yeah, and I think that that's more, t- uh, you know, re- attainable, attainable for developers to build a three or four story building uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, a tower, which takes years to build. Um, but this, I, what, I saw a recent stat, though, about how uh, other cities, you know, Vancouver has been had a lot of pressure to do a lot of rental housing over the last years. It's kind of slowing down now comparatively to uh, other cities, and they seem to be getting into the rental housing game more, in the, in the, whether it's subsidized or, or there's a, are the margins good for rental housing? Now is that why we're seeing more rental housing built, or is it subsidized by government? 
Um, well, I think what we've seen in like the city of Vancouver has been arguably one of the leaders in the region around this in terms of like in trying to provide various incentives, mm-hmm. waiving development cost charges, you know, and parking requirements uh, in order to get um, you know, uh, sort of mid-density uh, rental housing built. And there's been some resurgence in that. But I think, like, more broadly speaking, if we want to go back to the the levels that we saw in, say, the 60s and 70s, uh, then we need to, you know, we need senior government right. involved. We need, uh, we need funding, I would say, in particular for land. Because yeah. uh, once you have the land, that's the most expensive piece. Yep. Uh, you can you can build something and then pay for the cost of that construction over you know thirty, forty, fifty yeah. years. Particularly if you're a nonprofit, uh, so the it essentially pays for itself over time. But the the big hump is some of the really inflated land values that that we're seeing. So I think that's a good area for um, you know senior governments to say, look, there's a lot of folks out here who've made these massive windfall gains on their housing, hundreds of thousands, if not millions. We need to tax some of that and put it into buying up some land that we can turn over to nonprofits to build like genuinely affordable housing. You know that, that costs what it costs, not what there's a markup for a developer and markup to um, uh, existing landowners. That's also barriers to right and then, affording cheap housing. And then let and tell municipal governments to fast track some of these things so that they don't get caught up in the red tape of, of city hall. I mean, you look at the '70s. You talked about the numbers were higher then. There were significant national subsidies uh, or, or and tax incentives of programs. Those all ended, I think, under uh, Chrétien in the 90s. Uh, and you see now a generation where we didn't have, we haven't had real, really any kind of national program that's of, of any, and so therefore we have a generation who are now having this challenge for finding housing. Yeah, I mean, we had senior governments basically stepped out of the housing game in the 90s, mm-hmm. uh, federally in the in the early 90s. And then, uh, you know, BC, I think it was around 2001, 2002, where we, we stopped right. uh, that. There has been some res- resurgence of that. There's this uh, federal national housing strategy, but uh, a lot of the money there is in the form of, of uh, loans as opposed to grants. Uh, and they, it's been kind of slow to roll out uh, here uh, in BC. So certainly there's a, there's a big, big role for uh, senior governments to get involved. That's one of the, the main uh, like calls to action coming from the housing su- supply panel. So uh, we should take that seriously and, and you know, basically get shovels in the ground because, like yeah. I said, this stuff pays for itself over time. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate you being with me today. Take care. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett. Welcome back. And before the break, we were talking to uh, the McDonnell-Laurier Institute about the economy and about how stimulus is working and whether or not uh, it's our economy is getting too hot. And today, the Bank of Canada took another big step to rein in emergency levels of stimulus, once again tapering its bond purchases in a sign of optimism about the speed of the, uh, the recovery. All of this is a bit confusing, and so to discuss this uh, and what this all means to us, to the economy, uh, I'm, I'm joined by CKNW business analyst Robert Levy. Hey, Robert. Hey, George. How are you? Good. How are you doing? So uh, break this down for me. The Bank of Can- I'm a bit confused because the Bank of Canada, from what I understand, is saying the economy is not too hot. Uh, but we heard from before the break that it is too hot, that we need to, you know, which is it? What's going on? It's an optimistic tone from the Canadian Central Bank, who we know did all this extraordinary stimulus during the depths of the pandemic. They dropped interest rates to zero, and and then they did this program called quantitative easing, and then they participated in other credit markets, provincial debt markets, corporate debt markets. But the the main thing now where their focus is is their QE program in in the federal debt markets, and and they're starting to rein that in a little bit. So the, the most simple takeaway is that this economic recovery is on track, 
and, and the Bank of Canada no, need, no longer needs to play a bigger role. They're not talking about raising interest rates anytime soon, and that's sort of created its own debate, you know, mm-hmm. similar to what you're talking about, the economy running too hot and an inflation story. But in terms of being as supportive for the credit markets with this QE program that, you know, we saw for the first time during this recession pandemic that we didn't even see during the global financial crisis, they're continuing to sort of rein that in because they don't need to play as big a role. There's been so many surprises over this past year. Obviously, the pandemic was the worst surprise of all, but nobody saw, everybody went panicked, the stock market crashed briefly, then it came back stronger than ever. Then the housing market didn't crash, kind of a little bit, like a month, and then it came back crazier than ever. Uh, And then we're not seeing sort of hyperinflation. We saw massive borrowing. Uh, We've seen interest rates stay super low. It all goes against everything that I thought was the belief of most (laughs) historical economists. It's quite confusing, don't you? Isn't it? You're not wrong there. It's certainly moved from one extreme to the other. You know, the comparisons especially, and we're seeing them now when we make parallels to where we were a year ago, no one knew what the next day was going to look like. And that's why we saw, you know, whether it's economic forecasters or it's businesses who are projecting spending and revenue and all that kind of stuff. No one knew what the next day was going to look like out of this thing. And it's the reason, you know, there's still a little bit of confusion and mm-hmm. whether policy of circles or the corporate sector. The Bank of Canada is trying to say, you know, we're still watching this very closely. And I think the hottest debate here now is the tapering QE story. It's almost, you know, a little bit boring in the sense because they're doing this because they're able to do it. Uh, focus now is certainly you know, to the interest rate story. When are they going to be, be able or begin to raise interest rates? Because there's this inflation debate, mm-hmm. you know, which many people are talking about. And we're going to start to see and continue to see higher prices. But then you see this fact that people have managed to save. And I think the article points out this, that people have managed to save a bunch of money. Uh, and the banks are seeing record profits. So they're happy even with interest rates so low. Um, it, it's, it seems like the crystal ball of economists are broken that they're not being able to predict what they used to be able to predict. No, and especially, too, when you had an event like we had last year that nothing really seen before. I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe go back 100 years before that to the Spanish flu, but who knew how it was going to hit hit the economy. And I remember a year ago, we were talking about letters of the alphabet to try and, you know, forecast what this recovery was going to look like, whether it was a V or a W, (laughs) uh, you know, and and now the term was the K-shaped recovery, because as we know very well, there was a haves and a have nots. Mm -hmm. There were people who were able to work from home and do their job and continue to get paid and they amassed record savings. And there are people in the hospitality sector or the restaurant sector or hotel industry and tourism. And, and, you know, they got hammered by it. So it it was very much a story of have and have nots. And, you know, in hindsight, maybe we can say, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But (laughs) sure. Much different story than a year ago. It's you brought up the the Spanish flu in the previous pandemic in the late uh, 1918, 1920 in that area. Uh, and then there was euphoria that followed that for 10 years until massive crash in 1929. Uh, we saw the recession, you know, the depression. Uh, do you, is that what's happening here? Are we in some sort of euphoric state of mind and we're just kind of, oh, wow, everything's, you know, we're getting out of this thing. We're, we're just going to go spend crazy and we're going to, the economy is just going to go crazy and we're going to have a great few years until... Not certainly forecasting a crash, you know, two, three years out right now, but that the Bank of Canada even carried this optimism is the reason that they continue to see stronger economic growth next year. They paired back this year, Uh, but they suggest and they're even more uh, maybe optimistic than some of the Canadian bank economists that Canadians who have amassed these savings, these excess savings sort of 
beyond what are normal levels are going to go in and spend 20% of that. So th- there's a little story for a consumer-driven recovery, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which fits into their narrative. Uh, the, the question, though, and sort of, you know, as it links back to the inflation debate and higher prices, if everybody's still gainfully employed, they're spending excess dollars, and we see higher prices on consumer goods, it, it might blend in. Uh, but, you know, to talk about, you know, something to have caution about a few years down the road, it, it is whether this inflation story is going to be short lived or whether it's going to be have a little longer lasting effects. And, you know, that's where the Bank of Canada still bets on the fact that it will be short lived. But some people are suggesting, you know, in a world of deglobalization where we're relying more on our domestic markets, the, the, what we've seen in trends in e-commerce and increasing prices there, that maybe inflation will be a little more prevalent in our daily lives. So we should get used to prices climbing, climbing a little faster than they used to, maybe around two percent. You, you mentioned e-commerce, and that's sort of one of the. the when you talk about the K, uh, what other industries you th- that you, that really prospered in this past year because of the pandemic, or evolved quicker than they probably would have if it hadn't this hadn't happened that you saw? Well, yeah, e-commerce was certainly one because people were stuck at home and they were shopping. Uh, we saw people who continued to be able to be gainfully employed, so they spent some of their excess dollars on home improvement or renovations or even going out and buying and building new homes. The housing market's been on absolute fire and cooling down a little bit now, but but that's another sector, and especially here in Canada with demand for, for natural resources and supplies. You know, the resource sector's been hot for the Canadian economy too. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, another one that comes to mind and, you know, linked to the supply chain shortages, but you drive past any uh, auto dealer right now and you look at the tightness in, in their lots, there's no new cars on the lot. So there, there's another example. So a, a lot of the, the sectors tied to what's, you know, consumer driven has been a sort yeah. of strong benefactor over the last couple of months. If you were to make recommendations to people, to individuals for the year ahead, what would you recommend they think about and consider when they're thinking about spending money or how they manage their own personal finances? <laughs> that could be a tricky one, George. I, I don't know. <laughs> Come but, on, you know, Robert. One I'm hearing a lot lately, lately, and it's it's definitely the topic of discussion right now. Is people who who've had the opportunity to renew their mortgages, and, and they're either breaking and relocking in, or locking in at you know what are rates here? Is mm-hmm. the whole variable versus fixed rate mortgage conversation again? Because right. you're hearing stories of fixed rate mortgages at 1.4 percent, or you know you're locking yeah. rate two and a half percent. So. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is the opportunity to have a look at, you know, where your finances are and where your debts are and, you know, take a look at your mortgage rates. That'd be something to to focus on and do a little homework and research. All right, Robert, I appreciate you joining me uh, and and thanks for all your work with CKNW. Hey, nice chat with you. George Affleck in for uh, Jill Bennett this week. And before the uh, news, we heard Minister of Health Adrian Dix announce changes to the ambulance services. Some highlights uh, included, uh, let's see, a whole bunch of uh, new staff here. We've got um, 85 new full-time paramedics, 30 full-time dispatchers, 22 ambulances, new ambulances, and converting 22 rural ambulance stations into 24-7 uh, Alpha stations. Joining me now is Troy Clifford. He's the uh, provincial uh, president at the Ambulance Paramedics and Dispatchers of BC, and he's been a paramedic for 33 years. Hey, Troy. Hey, George. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for. I know the press conference is still, I think, going on with questions. But, yeah, you uh, caught me a little earlier than I. Uh, I know it's a, it's a long press conference, but just uh, we'll do real quick. So, give me uh, your thoughts, your initial thoughts of what they announced today. 
So, yeah, I had a pre-meeting with uh, Minister Dix just to go over and his deputy, Dr. Stephen Brown, uh, at lunchtime. And I've been meeting, obviously, over the last couple of weeks, but over the last couple of days with the minister who's been trying to brief me on where they're going and what they're doing. So, um, uh, you know, my initial reaction, I'm still absorbing it and reviewing it all, but uh, my initial reaction is he's given us hope. He, mm-hmm. It was an inspiring uh, message that uh, he's clearly heard um what the public, uh, the patients, and the paramedics and dispatchers have been saying, yeah. but what you've been saying, what I've been saying, and he's identified all our key uh, areas. Uh, as uh, And um, what's more encouraging for me is that uh, he's laid out a plan to move forward to really reinstate the ambulance service to the world-class organization that we've been saying it is or was and needs to get back to. And, and you know, the support for paramedics and dispatchers from a wellness and mental and psychological perspective, that was a really key yeah. thing. Um, the additional resources with, uh, with the mandate to move forward to the fall um, and put a plan in place that to give complete clear direction there. And as well, the uh, I'm just trying to go off the top yeah. of my head here. So can, can you get that kind of stuff in place that quickly? 85, you know, 85 paramedics. We've got the opening up the ambulance stations, 24-7 alpha stations in the rural locations. Is this all possible? That's one of the challenges I would imagine is, okay, sure, great, thanks very much, but now we've got to actually do this. Yeah, so I think those are all good questions. And But I think what we've done, and, and the you know, obviously you can't announce everything, but mm-hmm. the key part that is working together with this new board, with the new chief ambulance officer, and I've already actually talked to Leanne, um, and uh, I will be meeting tomorrow. As soon as tomorrow, uh, she's reached out, and mm-hmm. I have uh, agreed to meet with her tomorrow and just talk about how we can immediately impact uh, change. And we've actually put some proposals together that we've been working with the uh, CEO and, and the government on um, for some immediate measures to, to prop up and, and fill those vacant seats in the ambulance service in, uh, in the lower mainland and across the province. So I think we can do some short-term, real immediate impacts to, to bridge us to the fact that we can get those additional resources in place and uh, in a longer-term plan. So we've kind of put a, a document together that uh, went to the senior leadership that talks about all those things, immediate impacts and solutions medium and then longer term stuff so okay. this work's been you know, ongoing for the last couple of weeks or even longer but mm-hmm. to really uh i i'm looking to roll up our sleeves with uh with leanne and the team that she has and let's get uh let's get to work so we can address exactly what you're talking about there is that chief ambulance officer leanne is that kind of you know who's uh, leanne heppel is going to be that person is that a new how's that work is that new the way that's structured yeah absolutely well it's, it's new in the sense that uh we've been under the PHSA, uh, Provincial Health Services Authority, um, as a shared service model as mm-hmm. opposed to a single entity with one person running it. Um, and uh, how Minister Dix, what I understand, he announced that they'll be reporting directly to the, uh, to not to the <laughs> board, and it'll be reporting directly to him as well as the president and CEO, David Byers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a one stream for the ambulance service as opposed to the uh, what we've seen at the health uh provincial health model um, and that's a really goes back to a lot of our roots where we came from as a, ent- a single entity and I think that can allow to address what I envision that being and I think that's what uh, the, what I understand of it is that that will allow us one stream one person in charge of the ambulance service report to the new board and directly up to the Ministry of Health and the senior leadership as, with a sense of all these la- without the layers of bureaucracy right. that, and that allows for our, to address really our unique um, structure is not a hospital, not a healthcare facility. We are a, 
uh, a dual healthcare and public safety role. And I think that what he's done here is acknowledge that um, and put in place a structure for us to really move forward to uh, to respond to what our real identity is and what our really needs of the public are. And that and that's the part that's really encouraging that we've put us a, a new structure in place mm-hmm. that goes back to what we know worked in the past in a in a sense. Um, and that, that I think is good. There's so obviously he's given direction that there needs to be change within the organization. Um, and I think that's what he's empowered the new leadership group. And yeah, this board. is the board with, uh, former city, um, uh, police, chief, uh, police chief, uh, Jim Chu. So he, that board's role is quite broad in that it's long-term planning. Is that the, sort of what they're thinking yeah. and, and oversight of what's going on as opposed to. And change and recommendations and mm-hmm. that. So those are all good things. And, uh, you know, he's, going to announce the rest of the board here by the end of the week, I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, we're optimistic that that board will be the, the right leadership um, to to steer this ambulance service into what we need and we've been saying um, that needed it for the patients, but for the paramedics. And, and mm-hmm. really, the, I mean, I heard a clear, pretty clear message. Yeah. High expectations of, of this being fixed moving forward. Yeah, you talked about percentiles, 90 percentile, getting yeah. getting to people in a faster way. Um, he also talked about firefighters. There's something there for them and the reviewing what they have. So that's because you kind of work separately, but they're, you're pretty good to call 911 and you get both of you both show up. So, um, you know, your thoughts on yeah. the, including the firefighters there? Yeah, so there's a sensitivity around that, obviously. Yeah. But uh, what I heard him say was that he's not, he's looking to look at what, He's asking for the Emergency Medical Licensing Board to give recommendations, which they've actually already been going through, mm-hmm. of what scope or what uh, skill sets do they need to provide the critical interventions in the first responder role at scenes uh, prior to the ambulance service. And he made it very clear to me this is not about expanding their capacity in the ambulance service. It's about making sure they have the right tools to provide the care when they are arriving in a first responder role to provide those critical interventions. And I think that's uh, something that needs to be explored mm-hmm. but uh, i also need to be clear that we what people need in their medical emergency is is a uh, is highly skilled trained paramedics to treat and transport to the hospital uh, and that can be supported as a, a vital part of that is first responders to support us um, in that whole chain of survival um, and that's really what he's saying there or what i'm hearing he's saying and i think that's a good thing anytime you can review what best practice um, to support us in our role that's a good thing but he really I see a bigger thing here is he's saying we need more ambulances to get to patients and we need more dispatchers to answer calls. And that's really what this is about. And they need to both be healthy. Yeah. And the connection between those two is pretty clear. So if you, even if you get through to a dispatcher, it doesn't mean you'll get an ambulance. And I think that's a problem that needs to be solved. And so, um, and I clearly uh, both sides of the, of that picture need to be yeah, fixed. So he's not saying that they necessarily, he's saying the review needs to be done by the, and, and the board will look at that, what best practice is, what's the clinical needs, not just because people want more things, mm-hmm. what is the best interest of patients? And that's, right? that's what's important, right? <laughs> that's what our whole being is for. And, <laughs> and I think that's really where, where we need to focus. All right, Troy, thanks for finding time, and I'll let you get back to it there. Okay, thank you.